0: Hello, and welcome to the Stronger Minds podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, Chartered Psychologist, bring you insights into the mind along with the latest information and research on how to build healthy brains. In this episode, I want to talk about a mental health disorder that I think is very poorly understood and can leave sufferers mischaracterised as deliberately manipulative or attention seeking. This misrepresentation of the illness drives hostility and stigma and can make people experiencing these symptoms reluctant to come forward and ask for the help they're entitled to or access services. I'll be talking about Borderline Personality Disorder, which in the UK is also known as Emotionally Unstable Personality Disorder. And in the two accompanying episodes, I speak to two people who are living with this diagnosis so that you can benefit from hearing from them telling their own stories. In preparing for this episode, I asked you guys whether you had any questions and I was overwhelmed by the response. I received over 30 different questions plus some repetition and I guess I didn't realise how many of you were either struggling with this yourself or concerned about loved ones. Um, Maybe I should have noticed but I guess uh, it's not part of the usual conversation that we have either on my Insta or Um, on some of the other episodes so um, because this is already going to be quite an in-depth episode and because I really need to get something out for you as soon as possible what I'll do is to do a separate Q&A episode the same way that I did for the Self for Self and People Pleasing pod Um, so do stay tuned for that. Okay so before we start let's talk about the label The term personality disorder is given to a cluster of overlapping symptoms that typically relate to a person's ability to form relationships, manage their emotions, and to behave in predictable or socially acceptable ways. As with many psychiatric diagnoses, there's no biological test for a personality disorder. And as such, making a diagnosis involves meeting the person and over the course of one or preferably several consultations, trying to assess the dominant difficulties that that person presents with. And because humans are so varied, it is incredibly rare that someone fits very neatly and cleanly into the diagnostic criteria for one disorder. And more often than not, people have traits that would fit into many diagnoses. So for example, people who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder also present with mood disorders 80 to 96% of the time. So that's things like depression. 88% also present with anxiety disorders. 64% present with substance abuse disorders. 53%, so about half, also have eating disorders. ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder presents in a third of cases, and 10% with somatoform disorders. So so in previous posts on Instagram, I've spoken about how emotional distress can find itself manifesting in physical illness. So we see that in about one in ten cases of borderline personality disorder diagnoses. So there is an issue with settling into one diagnosis, which, to be honest, is a little outside the remit of this episode. And it's really a much broader psychiatry question, which is what we're trying to do when we make a diagnosis. How clear can we be? How sure can we be? Do different clinicians agree? And and really the end point of that kind of discussion is how useful are diagnostic labels at all? Um, I will touch on that in the Q&A episode, but I'll just park that for the moment. In terms of population prevalence, around 1.6% of the general population qualify for a diagnosis of BPD, and that's roughly evenly split between the genders. So if we took 200 people, one man and one woman would present with the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. However, Up to 20% of people in inpatient settings have BPD as their primary diagnosis. So we can see that it's a very disabling condition, which often leads to people having to be inpatients in mental health settings. And the figures from the prison population are even more striking. An American paper from 2010 concluded that 40% of male prisoners and 52% of female inmates qualified for a diagnosis of BPD and most similar studies that have looked at prevalence place the rates at somewhere between at least 25% and 50% of the prison population. And these are extraordinarily high rates and it furthers the position that increasingly prisons are effectively mass psychiatric units. And it also makes a really strong case that people working in prisons, so uh, the medical team, the mental health teams, the officers, the safety teams, all of these people should be really made aware and trained in understanding borderline personality disorder presentations and the best types of interventions for people with this diagnosis. I think it also asks bigger justice questions about why is it that a group of people with this diagnosis are disproportionately ending up in prisons and is that fair is that right and isn't that something that we should be thinking about intervening much earlier in uh again I think that's probably slightly outside the remit of this podcast of this episode and although I did used to work in prisons and it's something that I care quite a lot about and perhaps that's something we can come back to in another episode Independently of the ambiguity around overlapping diagnoses, BPD has a bit of a troubled history. So epidemiological studies from the early 2000s suggested that 75% of people diagnosed with BPD are women. So in the general population, the gender split seems to be about equal. But when we get to people who have the diagnosis, three quarters of them are women. Now, there is some evidence that that is shifting, but it's still a much higher gender differential than we'd expect in a psychiatric diagnosis. And it's led many to question whether BPD is an inherently sexist diagnosis and one that's applied to difficult or hysterical women, very much in inverted commas. Unfortunately, we're not entirely clear on what's causing this gender difference, um, but there are a few possibilities. One of the issues is that there may be a bias in diagnosis. So, for example, we live in a society where men are largely expected to be more impulsive and to engage in more risky behaviours, both of which are hallmark symptoms of BPD, whereas women are characterised as more compliant and quiet and well-behaved. So it may be then that men are actually underdiagnosed with BPD and their BPD traits are being considered to just be normal male behaviour, or if it becomes slightly more pathological, the men who present with these types of behaviours are more likely to receive a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder than they are BPD. Another argument is that because experiencing childhood sexual abuse is one of the risk factors for later developing BPD, receiving the diagnosis, some say that since girls are more likely to be the victims of this crime, they are disproportionately predisposed to receive the diagnosis. However, I personally am inclined to believe that the rates at which boys and young men are sexually abused is extremely underreported due to the shame and the stigma around sexual abuse itself, and then also the social expectation that men should be stoic in the face of their own pain or trauma. And so, for this reason i personally am unconvinced that the gender linked disparities in the rates of abuse are the reason for the difference in bpd diagnosis across the genders for a related reason i think there is an element of sampling bias in as much as women are more likely to present to their doctor or contact a therapist for help than men are and the next possibility is a kind of as a personal theory really based on my experience and my training and the people that i've met so it's completely anecdotal i haven't tested it but i think that there is something of the unique combination of the invalidating environments uh, of people with BPD, which we'll talk about in a moment the greater tendency of girls to internalize their distress combined with the social expectation for women to be compliant, that together plays a role in the overrepresentation of women in this clinical population. But it would probably be helpful to, at this point, explain what BPD is and how a clinician would make a diagnosis. Borderline personality disorder received its name from an early observation that people with this diagnosis lived at the borderline between neurosis and psychosis. And this is not as alarming as it sounds. So in the psychoanalytic tradition, neurosis is a term that's used to describe psychological distress that is not associated with any loss of connection from objective reality. And sometimes people will still use the term neurotic to describe themselves or other people who are a bit intense or, or quite anxious. Common examples of what used to be more commonly called neurosis include things like like anxiety, irritability, obsessions, compulsions, perfectionism, so essentially the common mental health conditions and disorders as we'd know them today. In contrast to that, psychosis retains much of its original meaning in as far as it indicates a loss of connection from objective reality. The most well known examples of psychosis are auditory or visual hallucinations, so seeing things or hearing things that aren't there, as well as delusional beliefs, so perhaps thinking that the newsreader on the television is trying to communicate directly and only with you. And it is true that sometimes hallucinations of this kind form part of a BPD diagnosis, but there are lots of things that can cause any of us to have a psychotic experience. And that's things like extreme stress, anxiety or tiredness, some forms of depression, alcohol and psychedelic substance use, of course, um, some sleep disorders, as well as physical So Some people will start to see things when they have a really bad case of the flu or malaria, for example. And I say this because I know the term psychosis can sound extremely frightening, but in reality, Any of us could have a psychotic experience for any number of reasons and if we do it's more likely to be a transient phenomenon than a sign of a long-term or lasting issue. So to say that people with BPD were at the borderline of neurosis and psychosis was to describe that often there is intense anxiety, depression and low self-esteem present as we spoke about just earlier on but also that people with this diagnosis can behave as if their internal thoughts and beliefs are external objective truths so let me give you an example let's say that i meet a client and i will call this person alex and of course it's not a real person but you know it represents uh, the commonalities of the illness alex comes into the session and says something like the woman at work hates me and i will say how do you know that and Alex will say, I just know, it's obvious, she knows how shit I am, why would anybody like me? I'm trash. And in Alex's mind, there's no room for the possibility that this is just something they believe or have told themselves. In this way, they've made their internal reality an external truth, which is part of what we see in psychosis, so that's the description of the borderline experience. So whilst the term borderline links back to slightly older terminology, I think this description actually makes a lot of sense for many of the people that I work with who have this diagnosis. But what about making that diagnosis? What are the diagnostic criteria? for absolute clarity and accuracy and because I don't want to contaminate any of this with my opinion I will read these straight out of the DSM5 which is the latest version of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders and that's the book that mental health professionals use to make a psychiatric diagnosis now I have, as many psychologists do, one or two issues with the DSM, um, mostly in what I see as an increasing drive to pathologise normal human emotional experiences, um, especially in children. But for the sake of brevity, um, I'll leave that argument for another day and another podcast. So the next section is a little bit dry, but I think it's useful to include the four criteria in case there's anyone listening who recognises something of their own experience in here. So do bear with me. According to the DSM-5 criteria, for a diagnosis of BPD, you need a combination of two factors. So the first, significant impairments in personality functioning that manifest as impairments in self-functioning so either in identity so they described us as markedly impoverished poorly developed or unstable self-image often associated with excessive self-criticism chronic feelings of emptiness and dissociative states under stress and dissociation is the experience of kind of checking out psychologically being somewhere else um, not being fully aware or fully present in the moment and sometimes it can be literally almost having a kind of out-of-body experience separating from where your body is and we see that that often happens in extreme trauma experiences um and we consider it to be a protective mechanism of the mind uh, the other possibility for personality dysfunction is in self-direction and it says here instability in goals aspirations values or career plans um, and to be honest uh, I know a lot of people who don't have a diagnosis of anything who feel like that. Um, the second part of the criteria for a diagnosis are impairments in interpersonal functioning. So, we spoke about personality functioning. So, you, there's also impairments in interpersonal functioning, and that can manifest as. Difficulties in empathy, so compromised ability to recognise the feelings and needs of others associated with interpersonal hypersensitivity, so being prone to feeling slighted or insulted. Perceptions of others selectively biased towards negative attributes or vulnerabilities. And the other part of interpersonal dysfunction are in intimacy, so intense and unstable and conflicted close relationships marked by mistrust, neediness, an anxious preoccupation with real or imagined abandonment. And close relationships are often viewed in extremes of idealisation and devaluation and alternating between over-involvement and withdrawal. So really, I describe this when I'm talking to people as uh, not knowing what distance is safe. So sometimes close feels too close and then sometimes separate feels isolating and as if the person has, has been left and abandoned. The diagnostic criteria continues and describes pathological personality traits in the following domains. So negative affectivity characterized by emotional lability, so emotions that go up and down, unstable emotional experiences and frequent mood changes, emotions that are easily aroused, intense and or out of proportion to events and circumstances. Anxiousness, Intense feelings of nervousness, tenseness or panic, often in reaction to interpersonal stresses, so things that come up in relationships. Worry about the negative effects of past unpleasant experiences and future negative possibilities. So really worrying that the bad things that have happened to you in the past have tainted or corrupted your opportunities in the future. Feeling fearful, apprehensive or threatened by uncertainty fears of falling apart or losing control fears of rejection by and or separation from significant others associated with fears of excessive dependency and complete loss of autonomy so that's that distance thing so when you feel close to someone you start feeling that you've lost all of your autonomy all of your agency you're being smothered your, your identity is going to disappear and so needing to pull away but then pulling away and thinking well now I'm all by myself I'm completely alone Everyone's forgotten about me. I've been completely abandoned and nobody cares about me. And so not knowing what's a safe and healthy distance for oneself, but also in a relationship. The criteria continue. Depressivity. So frequent feelings of being down, miserable and or hopeless. Difficulty recovering from such moods. Pessimism about the future. Pervasive shame. Feelings of inferior self-worth. Thoughts of suicide and suicidal behaviour disinhibition characterized by impulsivity, acting on the spur of the moment in response to immediate stimuli. So this is really that instant reaction to an event that happens and not no space for stopping, thinking, contemplating. It's just immediate response to a stimuli. Acting on a momentary basis without a plan or consideration of the outcomes difficulty establishing or following plans, a sense of urgency and self-harming behavior under emotional distress, risk-taking engagement in dangerous risky and potentially self-damaging activities unnecessarily and without regard to consequence, lack of concern for one's limitations and denial of the reality of personal danger. So really to me this is someone who doesn't really know how to look after or protect themselves and I know I said I wouldn't biases with my own opinion but I'm sorry I can't help myself um but I continue antagonism characterized by a hostility a persistent or frequent angry feelings anger or irritability in response to minor slights and insults the impairments in personality functioning and the individual's personality trait expression are relatively stable across time and consistent across situations so that's saying that all of these difficulties that they've described are persistent it's not just with one person or in one particular circumstance or situation, but across relationships and across situations. The impairments in personality functioning and the individual's personality trait expression are not understood as normative for the individual's developmental stage or social cultural environment. So it's not that this person is being risky just because adolescents tend to be more risky or just because this particular Population is more prone to risky behavior, for example. And the impairments in personality functioning and the individual's personality trait expression are not solely due to direct physiological effects of substance, such as um, such as drug abuse or medication, or a general medical condition, such as uh, injury. <sighs> okay, so those are all of the diagnostic criteria, and what they describe are problems with one's own sense of identity combined with problems relating with others. And of course, we would expect those things to be connected. It would be incredibly difficult to interact with others in a consistent way if you don't feel you have a clear sense of who you are or your own value. I will go on to explain my conceptualization of what these criteria, these symptoms mean in relation to what we know about the histories of many of these clients and patients. Um, So those are the diagnostic criteria, but what are the causes? There are understood to be a number of factors that combine to give rise to the set of symptoms that together form borderline personality disorder. Brain imaging studies indicate that people with this diagnosis have different patterns of activation in the amygdala, which is the threat recognition area of the brain. And this difference seems to be reflected in trials where people with BPD are more likely to incorrectly attribute hostile emotions such as anger and disgust to neutral faces. So in these sorts of trials, what they do is to get uh, groups of people, uh, some people without a diagnosis, some people with a diagnosis of, of, of many different conditions. But in this case, of course, borderline personality disorder. And they will show them uh, images of people's faces. And some people will clearly have one set of expressions on their face. So people will be clearly happy if they're seen smiling or laughing or clearly sad if their mouth is turned down and their eyebrows are turned down. And then there will be a series of neutral faces. And what we see in these trials is that people with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder are more likely to say that those neutral faces are angry or hostile, or condemning. So this suggests that people with a BPD diagnosis both anticipate and see more hostility in the world around them. And when working with people, I describe this as their hypervigilance. It's as though they are constantly on the lookout for where the next emotional danger is coming from. And what we know about perception is that the more you look for something, the more likely you are to find it. And that seems to be what's reflected in these trials. There is evidence of genetic risk factors um, as demonstrated in twin studies, and that can account for about half of the variance in the incidence of BPD. But it doesn't explain all of the incidents. And what we see overwhelmingly present in the histories of people who have this diagnosis is some form of extreme or prolonged emotional distress in childhood. For example, some of the main contributing environmental factors are childhood abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, psychological, emotional or neglect, maternal separation, a poor maternal attachment, faulty family boundaries where roles and behaviours are unpredictable or they're liable to change at kind of any moment, parental substance abuse and serious parental psychopathology. So, we're really describing a developmental issue that's associated with high stress environments and volatile and unstable interpersonal relationships early on in life. And when we talk about serious parental psychopathology, that includes really extreme emotional abuse, Uh, parents threatening their children with knives, parents who make suicide pacts with them, terrorizing them with violence. Beating them up in public in front of their school friends, for example. All of which are real experiences that have been described to me. Now, of course, not everyone with this diagnosis will have had such an extreme history. And of course, if you know someone with a diagnosis of BPD and they say that nothing like this happened to them, that that this wasn't their experience, I would urge you to believe them. But in honesty, This level of interpersonal abuse and terror is not uncommon for me to hear. And this really gets to one of the core features of the developmental environments of people who go on to receive a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. These environments are described in the literature as emotionally invalidating. This means that these children grew up in environments that made them question their reality or the validity of their emotions. So, that would be things like people consistently being told that they deserved the abuse or neglect that they were receiving, that it was their fault or that they made the other person do it, or being told that their emotional reactions were silly or stupid, that their brains were just wrong. And abuse that comes from someone who is supposed to play a caring or protective role for the child is particularly harmful because it forces the child to question or actively distort their reality in order to help them survive and to create some semblance of a sense of safety. So when faced with the dilemma of someone who should be protective and caring and kind and safe, but who's actually abusive or damaging, when faced with the dilemma, the child who's psychological apparatus is not fully formed or developed enough to comprehend that the problem, the danger, the harm, the damage lies in the adult and not the child, the child has to come up with some other solution for why this is happening to them. And that solution is often a process called splitting or black and white thinking. And it goes something like this. So let's return to Alex. Let's imagine that Alex grew up as the only child to a very depressed and addicted parent who was at times highly dangerous and at other times deeply needy and vulnerable. So Alex was locked in this push and pull relationship with their parent, needing their love and being terrified of their moods and unpredictable violence. At times, the parent would break down and Alex would need to care for them and these were the moments in which alex was both the most safe because the parent was temporarily subdued and the most vulnerable because there was no functioning adult in the house so as a child alex's internal world felt something like i rely on this person for my survival they are the only thing i know and i love them because this is the child's experience of the parent but This person is terrifying and dangerous and frightens me. However, psychologically, being able to see a situation or a person as shades of grey, as both good and bad, both loving and cruel, is actually quite a mature position that takes a few years and the right conditions to arrive at. So instead, as a child, Alex is forced to separate the good from the bad. And psychologically, that looks like something like, my parent is good and I am the cause of all the problems. If I could just be better, everything would be all right. I must be terrible. I must be an awful person to make other people want to treat or hurt me like that. So you can see that splitting really describes that separation between the good and the bad. Um, an all or nothing approach to the self and also to the world. And it's worth noting that though I have referenced abuse, and though this is often present in the histories of people with this diagnosis, invalidating environments can be much more subtle than overt abuse. The emotional dismissal, which is the key part of the invalidating environment, may take the form of facial expressions, looks or behaviours that are designed to minimise the child's emotional expression. Essentially, the child gets the idea that their emotions are unwelcome or unbearable for the parent um, or other invalidating environment, because I've also seen this occur in school settings, in faith groups or in friendship groups. So it's not always the home environment, but overwhelmingly it is, but it can be others. And um, And whatever the setting, essentially the child gets the idea that they have to deal with their emotional distress by themselves. However, really the cruel injustice of that situation is that we learn to manage our own emotions by initially having someone else help us to do it. And it's the process of internalizing repeated experiences of kindness and understanding that helps us to learn how to soothe ourselves later in life. So there is this double whammy of not having your emotional needs attended to in the first place and therefore not learning how to take care of your emotions yourself later in life. And this is why we see a lot of the externalizing behaviors in BPD. Where there is an incredibly high comorbidity of self-harming behaviors now there are lots of theories about the development and functions of self-harm in my experience the function of the behavior is really dependent on the person and their own developmental experiences Um, so some examples that i've come across for some people they grew up in environments that were actively hostile to emotions such as those in which emotions were considered a weakness, or where depression isn't real. You know, you just need to pull yourself together, or all the messages. You know, I had a difficult time, and I didn't let it stop me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In these environments, often the only, in inverted commas, real or acceptable pain or injury is a physical one, and so people come to, you know, very, very much unconsciously, but they come to link deserving care only with having a physical illness or injury. So for some people, self-harm may be an unconscious adaptation that emerges as a means of getting some care from an invalidating environment. For others, there is a way in which emotional pain feels much harder to address than a physical pain. So, you know, if you graze your knee, you can ice it, you can bandage it, you can stay off it. But when you're emotionally bruised, it's hard to know what to do to make it better. And I've worked with people who have said that tending to a cut gave them a feeling of being able to do something about the pain they were in. So the physical pain is a more manageable alternative to the emotional suffering. An extension of this idea is that the physical pain symbolizes the emotional pain. So for these people, inflicting the harm and then tending to it is a very concretized form of emotional self-care. And when we say concretized, it's what we mean is that you take something that is um, hypothetical, psychological, abstract, symbolic and make it fixed and real physical and concrete. Occasionally self-harm is a pathological form of control in the face of suffering and I have seen this most often with people with the most traumatic histories so this came up almost overwhelmingly when I worked in prisons Um, and really it's It's hard to describe the cruelty that most of the women I worked with had experienced as children um, and as young women before they committed the crimes that got them imprisoned. But the abuse that they had suffered had been so inescapable that they'd come to the conclusion that they were put on this earth to suffer and they had long ago abandoned all hope of life improving. Um, or of receiving any kindness from other people. And for these women, and I say women because I mostly worked in uh, a women's prison, for these women, the decision was pretty much if I'm going to suffer, then I might as well be in charge of what that suffering looks like. And I guess related to that, but different, but, but related. Uh, Sometimes self-harm is a manifestation of self-hatred and again this occurs when someone has taken in the idea that they are unwelcome, unwanted, a burden or a problem. They feel that as hard as they try there is nothing they can do to be a better person but will be driven to punish themselves for failing to be a better person, for not trying hard enough, for not succeeding. Um, And I've also seen this localized to certain parts of the body and uh, in my experience that has happened particularly in the cases of sexual assault but in all of these examples in all of these cases we're talking about self-harm as a remedy for an escape from or as a management of emotional suffering and for these reasons many patient groups and advocates campaign against the diagnosis of BPD as a disorder in itself, but rather as an adaptive response to complex trauma. That what is being called an illness is really an understandable response to trauma experiences. And uh, these campaign groups argue that someone who's already suffered from harm in this way should not be further harmed by what can be a very stigmatizing diagnostic label. And to be perfectly honest, I'm inclined to agree. However, one of the realities about our health system is that treatment is ring-fenced to particular illnesses, particular conditions, particular groups. And so for many people, not having the diagnosis means that they are ineligible for the available treatments. So A diagnosis is often the key to opening the door to treatment. To return to an earlier point, you may have noticed something familiar about this all or nothing thinking. This kind of black and white thinking or splitting isn't only seen in people with psychiatric diagnoses. In fact, we can all fall into these traps and we think about splitting really as positions that you can move into and out of rather than being consistent states, and that often happens when we're in unfamiliar or threatening situations. And in fact, um, you kind of see every day in our politics, so when you've got two-party politics, conservatives or liberals, and nothing in between, and in aspects of the social justice movement, so whenever you hear someone say all of whatever group of people are bad or evil or whatever, what you're seeing is an example of splitting of this all or nothing thinking. However, what happens in BPD is that rather than just being an occasional trap that we fall into, black and white thinking or splitting becomes one of the dominant ways of understanding the world and other people. And as you can imagine, Going through life thinking that you yourself are a terrible person who brings out the worst in others will have an awful effect on your self esteem and your sense of identity. But I want to draw your attention to another link between the invalidating environment and the symptoms of BPD. So, we've already seen how the conflict between dependence and fear can create splitting with potential knock on effects for identity. But I think it also explains one of the other main features of BPD, which is the intense fear of abandonment and the expectation of rejection. So our person, Alex, has deeply internalised the belief that they are a terrible person, yet they have a deep need for care and affection, as we all do. However. Alex doesn't feel that they are entitled to simply expect love, nor that they are deserving of it. So Alex's enduring sense is that at any moment, the person that they need or love is going to realise how terrible they are and leave. And this may start out as being a function of the original invalidating environment or relationship, but it soon becomes a template for all significant relationships and social interactions. And I often describe this to clients as the feeling that you have no relationship credit in the bank. And I'll explain that. So under normal circumstances, most of us feel that where our relationships are today is the sum total of all of the things that have happened previously in the relationship. So if you've been dating someone for, say, two years, your relationship is a combination of all the positives, plus or minus the negative experiences that have occurred during the entire course of those two years. So maybe you have an argument about the tidying up today, but that doesn't really make much of a dent in the credit of all of the good experiences that you've had as a couple. And therefore you don't panic that an argument about the dishes is going to cause the other person to end the relationship, pack their bags and leave. However, for someone with a diagnosis of BPD, they feel as if they have not built up any credit whatsoever. And they live every day of their relationship at zero or even minus, you know, that they're almost lucky to be there. And so they're constantly worried that any negative thing that they do will send them into the red, causing the other person to leave them. So let's say that Alex has an argument with their partner about the dishes. Now, whereas the partner maybe just needed to blow off some steam, they'd had a rough day and it kind of just sparked in this argument about the washing up and they don't think twice about it, Alex thinks, well, you know, this is it, this is the thing, I knew it would happen. So remember that hypervigilance, that expectation that something bad was going to happen. So in this circumstance, Alex thinks that this is the thing, you know, finally, their good luck has run out and the bad thing they were expecting has caught up with them. And then because Alex has rarely, if ever, had that developmental experience of someone reassuring them that things will be okay, Alex is unable to self soothe, which is just a way of saying bring themselves back to baseline, you know, calm themselves down, rationalize, look at the balance of the rest of the relationship because, of course, Alex is at zero or minus and there is no credit accrued. And because Alex tends to see things in extreme black and white ways, this can trigger a spiral that goes something like, that's it, you know, I finally, I I fucked it up, it's over, everything is gone, I've lost everything. And because Alex tends to see their beliefs as concrete facts, this thought becomes, I'm garbage, and now I've lost them, and I'll never find anyone else who will put up with me. What's the point? I want to die. And that's not an exaggeration. These are the kinds of streams of consciousness and internal dialogue that clients will describe to me. And in this way, something that seems as innocuous as a tiff about the dishes can become a crisis for someone in that BPD spiral. And it's this rapid trajectory into the abyss, which is why people with this diagnosis can often be unfairly maligned as attention-seeking, as melodramatic, or as manipulative. Because it can be very hard for someone on the outside to see how a small disagreement about something tiny or even you know, seemingly meaningless can genuinely lead to suicidal ideation. But hopefully you can see how it's really this combination of psychological traits and habits linked to a previous history that locks together in the most negative way to take someone from fine to crisis in a matter of minutes. And also, hopefully, that gives you some clarity to another of the common characteristics uh, from the criteria that I described earlier on, which is an emotional response that feels out of proportion to the event. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that when you understand the psychological habits and the environmental conditions in which they developed, the symptoms of BPD become much more understandable. And once you understand something, you are in a much stronger position to intervene. And, and this perhaps is, is my main issue, that unless the diagnosing professional is very careful to explain the condition, the person receiving the diagnosis may simply just leave the room thinking there's just something wrong with me or my personality is broken any diagnosis of bpd or any personality disorder because you know the name feels so awful feels much more fixed and condemning than a diagnosis of depression for example so in a world where mental health diagnoses come with a side order of stigma personality disorders are some of the most stigmatized conditions which of course just adds to the burden of self-condemnation that these clients and patients are already struggling under. Okay, so there is already some difficulty with assessment um, and diagnoses and individual and clinical teams have varying attitudes on the validity of diagnoses and as you'll hear in the accompanying episodes my two guests both struggled to get a clear diagnosis and a clear consensus which at least for them, it was not very helpful. But as I mentioned earlier on, this isn't a conversation about the value of the diagnosis per se. Um, and irrespective of what you call it, um, BPD is a very serious condition. Many people with BPD self-harm, as we heard earlier on, um, some will attempt suicide and 10% of people with a BPD diagnosis will die by suicide. So, Really, we need to be focusing on the treatments. It's important to say that people with BPD do improve. And the prognostic stats uh, from a recent review showed that after two years, 35% of people were in remission. Um, After 10 years, 91% of people were in remission. And after 16 years, 99% of people were in remission so would therefore no longer kind of reach the criteria or the threshold for a diagnosis. Now, that's great. It sounds great. However, in this particular review, remission was associated with what they described as impoverished social landscapes. So it looked like people were suffering less simply because they were interacting less. They were avoiding interpersonal relationships rather than improving their interpersonal skills. People who got better faster did so if they didn't have a comorbid diagnosis, which as we saw earlier on in the overlapping diagnoses is incredibly rare not to have a comorbid diagnosis. Um, If they didn't have a history of childhood sexual abuse, if there was no history of family, drug or substance abuse, if they were still functioning, so if they were still able to attend school or to work, um, you know, to have a normal aspect of their lives, um, and if they were under 25. So in terms of treatments, although medication is used to treat the associated mood disorders, things like anxiety and depression, there isn't a licensed drug treatment for borderline personality disorder. And for my money, that makes sense, because I think what we're talking about is a response to trauma, and there isn't really a way of medicating trauma but I digress the main treatment protocol for BPD is psychological therapy and in the last 30 years two specialist treatments have been developed to treat BPD and they are dialectical behavior therapy or DBT and mentalization based treatment which is MBT I trained in dialectical behavior therapy about 10 years ago um, and EBT, which was developed in the late 80s, early 90s by Marsha Linehan, is a specialised modular treatment for working with people with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And it combines CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, lots of abbreviations today, and mindfulness. And the basic idea is that the mindfulness helps to interrupt the spiralling process. Um, like I outlined with Alex and that the CBT and skills training elements help people to improve the quality of their interpersonal relationships so that there's more reality testing of their beliefs and more asking for the care they need and the kind treatment they deserve. Um, DBT treatment is quite resource intensive because done properly it includes patients having weekly group and individual therapy, a therapist consultation team, plus patients having access to therapists out of hours for additional phone coaching. I mentioned that DBT is modular and the modules are mindfulness, To help people to better tolerate powerful emotions and to help them stay present and to not dissociate in the face of difficult feelings, um, especially those that come up in the course of treatment, because that is what happens when you attend therapy, difficult things come up. Distress tolerance to improve the daily management of painful feelings and increase self-soothing emotion regulation to limit the frequency or intensity of emotion experiences. And the final module is interpersonal effectiveness skills to help enhance the quality of their relationships. The full cycle of DBT takes 24 weeks and clients ideally may repeat the cycles until they feel ready to stop. In the UK, uh, psychologist and psychoanalyst Peter Fonagy and Anthony Bateman developed mentalization-based treatment. MBT is again an integrated form of treatment for BPD, which combines psychodynamic psychotherapy, CBT, and some skills training. The underlying assumption in MBT is that people with this diagnosis make incorrect judgments about the beliefs, intentions, and feelings of others, and then act on those assumptions without testing their validity. So back to that clinical trial I mentioned about the assumptions about neutral faces. And this drives the states of fear, panic, and anxiety and the impulsive behavior seen in BPD. So addressing this is aimed at reducing self-harm and suicidality. And In trials, both sets of treatments have been shown to be effective at improving the quality of life of people with a BPD diagnosis. Both of these types of intervention require specially trained therapists and then the time and facilities to facilitate groups and the additional support. And as such, there is a huge issue, at least in the UK, over access and availability of treatment. If you are lucky enough to have a DBT service in your area, waiting lists are often at least six months long a potential alternative is to find a dbt trained therapist so if you go into the counseling directory therapists who have been trained in dbt will often tick it as one of their specialties and though you won't be having the full dbt treatment protocol especially trained therapists will be able to help you to understand the nature of your symptoms and they themselves will be familiar with the presentation the risks the symptoms and some of the difficulties that can emerge during the therapy process. Outside of this, people with this diagnosis will often be managed with a combination of GP treatment, perhaps medication for any comorbid diagnoses, uh, therapy, and contact with their local CMHT. Uh, That's the community mental health team. Okay, so I think we are around an hour in. so I will wrap this up here. I think I answered most of the questions about the characteristics of the illness that came in um, on Instagram. So thank you for that. Those of you who asked me about my opinions, comparisons with other illnesses, traits, that sort of thing, I'll address those in the separate Q&A episode to follow. For now, I would love you to please go and listen to Brian and Rosie's stories because I think it's so important to give voice to the people who are actually living these experiences. As ever, these issues are complicated, psychiatric diagnoses are highly debated, and things vary from case to case. But I wanted to do this episode because I think BPD is very misunderstood almost by everyone by the general public, by uh, partners or friends of people with the diagnosis, and often by people with the diagnosis themselves. And I think it does a great disservice to people with this diagnosis who often spend much of their time existing in states of fear, you know, near terror and kind of self-hatred, really. And I appreciate that some of the symptoms of BPD can be difficult for friends or partners or colleagues to understand. But I hope that this episode has made the case that this is a group of people really deserving of compassion, as we all are and maybe a greater attempt at understanding. No, it's not up to loved ones to take the place of professionals. If a relationship is actually harmful, then no, you shouldn't stay in it for the sake of trying to heal the person with the diagnosis. And access to treatment, of course, is hugely important. But more generally, we can all make life a little less scary for each other. If you are someone with a diagnosis, I only hope that I have done justice to at least a part of your experience. If you have found this episode helpful, please do share it. It's not something that I think gets enough airtime. And hopefully this episode will help to clarify things for a lot of people. Thank you to everyone who has left a kind review about the podcast. I really appreciate it. And as ever, you can find me on socials at Food and Psych. That's F-O-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H. And until next time, I wish you the very best of health.